I want to greet you and say grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you can see by the mass exodus taking place, that Emmaus Kids is now dismissed. So parents, if you have children going to a class, they can make their way there at this time. I want to mention there are two QR codes. Do we have those? Perfect. Two QR codes that are on the screen behind me. The one over here is for you. If you're a guest with us here at Emmaus, that QR code is for you. I want to say if this is your first or maybe second or third time worshiping with Emmaus, we are so glad that you're here. We love guests. We love to welcome new faces. And so we pray that your first experience with Emmaus has been just a a, a rich blessing and encouragement to you. If you want to experience more of what Emmaus is, you can snap that QR code with your phone. It'll take you to a place online where you can fill out a connect card. We'll follow up with you and we can go from there. There's also another QR code for you. If you're not a guest, but you're ready, you've reached a point where you're ready to start giving financially to Emmaus, the QR code under how to give uh, will take you to EmmausKC.com slash give where you can give online. There's also a place out in the lobby where you can give just like a, a, there's like a black safe deposit box out there. You can drop an offering in that box on your way out today. I do have one very quick announcement. If you are a covenant member of Emmaus, or if you've been on our membership pathway, tonight we are meeting as covenant members at Northland Baptist Church at 5.30. We'll take some time at Northland to baptize three new people. We'll also welcome several other covenant members into fellowship here at Emmaus. We'll celebrate all that, that God is doing in and through the mission and ministries of our church. And then afterward, we'll have a short time of fellowship uh, where we'll have some desserts and uh, some bottled water and coffee and so forth. And we'll just spend time together after that's over. So please come tonight if you're a covenant member or if you're on your way to membership, uh, please come and uh, join us for our covenant members meeting this evening. It'll be a great time. All right, well, this morning, uh, I'm gonna do something I don't typically do. For our sermon text, I'm going to return to the passage I preached from last time I was up here. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking at just one verse from this chapter, and that would be verse 19. We're continuing in our series this morning where we're teaching through a new confession of faith for Emmaus. This is something we started doing last week. And we're looking at this as sound doctrine providing the framework for gospel culture. Sound doctrine for gospel culture. It's our conviction here at Emmaus that what the church believes should determine what the church is like. So we want to press into this conviction today. We'll begin by reading from Matthew 28, chapter, or Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Arguably the most famous play ever written for the stage is Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. In scene two of act two of the play, there's a question that rises to the forefront. You'll recognize this question right away. Juliet famously asks, what's in a name? She says, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Of course, in the context of the play, she's asking this question in reference to Romeo, her love interest, who just so happens to be a Montague. In fact, as you're probably well aware, that's the entire plot of the play. Juliet has fallen head over heels with a young man whose name is verboten to her family. Montagues and Capulets are sworn enemies. And yet, The object of her affection is none other than the son of a Montague. But as far as Juliet is concerned, this shouldn't matter. The name shouldn't factor into it. All that should matter is the love that she has for Romeo. And so she asks, what's in a name? As we approach our text this morning, we would do well to ask the same question as Juliet. What's in a name. After all, Jesus tells us here in the Great Commission to make disciples by baptizing them in the name. So when we ask of God what's in a name, we are asking a question of ultimate importance. It's not like in Romeo and Juliet where the name doesn't really matter No, when it comes to the God who made us, the God who redeemed us, the God who is present with us, when it comes to this God, the name matters. This is what Moses found at the burning bush. God appeared to him, and God says to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh. And you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses asks, who should I tell them has has sent me to do these things? In answer to that question, God gives him a name. God tells him, I am that I am is sending you. Friends, that is the story that, or that is the, the reality upon which the entire story of the Bible is resting. That there is one name. There's one name that delivers us. There's one name that is a refuge for us. High above every other God, there is one God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we know his name. His name is worthy of our highest adoration and allegiance. This is why Jesus tells us what he tells us, that as we go about making disciples, we are to baptize them in this one name. But if you stop and think about it, 
if you, if you concentrate on what Jesus is saying here, you realize that you're stumbling onto something quite extraordinary. The nature of the claim that is embedded in the words of Jesus, it's rather staggering because look at what he does. Jesus speaks of one name, but then he names three. Along with the entire witness of the Old Testament, Jesus affirms that there is one name, there is one God, and yet in the very next breath, three are named. On the surface of things, that's some interesting math. And so the question then becomes, how do we as Christians make sense of it? How do we understand the relationship between the one name and the three who are named? Well, the answer to that question is the very doctrine we're considering today. The doctrine of the Trinity. And yet it's at this point where we have to be really careful. Because not only is this a matter of our intellectual understanding, not not only is this a matter of reasonably unraveling a mystery, it's not just about assenting to, uh, to the correct theological data points. No, ultimately, this is a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. I love what one author says. An author by the name of Brandon Smith tells us that the doctrine of the Trinity is a call to worship, not a call to decoding mere theological facts. So here's the big idea of the message for today. This is what I want you to walk away with. I'm calling on every one of us to worship God by treasuring the doctrine of the Trinity. I not only want you to check the box of Trinitarian theology, no, I want you to delight in, to, to revel in, to treasure this doctrine with all your heart, your soul, mind, your strength. So to help us do that, I'm going to make just three very simple points. Point number one, God is one in essence. Point number two, God is Trinity in persons. And number three, this is good news for you and for the world. So let's begin looking at each of these with the first point, that God is one in essence. Last week, Pastor Matthew in his sermon alluded to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. A passage came from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does it mean for us to make this confession? What does it mean for us to confess that our God is one? Does it simply mean that our God is better than other gods? Like on a, a list of all the available deities there are to worship, the God of Israel is at the top of the list? Like we got our foam finger out, we're like, he's number one. Or does it simply mean that we are monotheistic, right? We, we aren't like those religions who worship a, a pantheon or a plurality of gods. Is that all we're saying? Or is there deeper meaning? 
I want to suggest to you that there is. There's deeper meaning in this. There's more that we can say about the oneness of God. You heard last Sunday about how our God is simple. He's a simple being. Now, I'll tell you what we don't mean by that. We don't mean when we say that God is simple that he's easy to understand. We don't mean that he is basic, that he is entirely accessible to our comprehensive powers. Instead, what we mean by God's simplicity is that he is not composed of parts. He's not composed of anything. Now, you might be thinking what I thought when I first heard of this doctrine some years back. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that I believe that God is not composed of parts? This, is, this sounds really random. So why is, it, why is it important? I want to do a little thought experiment. I want to invite you to think for a moment about the chair that you're sitting in right now. Like most churches all across this country, there are many of us here at Emmaus who like to sit in the same seat every week. Do you ever think about that seat? Probably not. But if you were to think about it for any length of time, you would quickly realize that there are several pieces of hardware that needed to be designed, manufactured, and assembled in order for that chair to rightly be called a chair. The constituent parts of the chair come together to form the physical essence of the chair. Or if I could put it differently, the essence of the chair depends upon the parts of the chair. And so you look at the chair, and it's not inappropriate to ask, okay, what goes into making the chair a chair? Right? What, what lies behind its essence? But when it comes to God, we cannot ask that question. There is not anything that goes into making God who he is. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. He does not have a physical body like we who are creatures. And this is important because physical bodies are composed of parts. But not God. He is not composed of anything. His essence does not depend on anything else, which is why God's simplicity is so closely related to another doctrine we heard about last week. God's aseity. His aseity, which is his absolute self-sufficiency. Right? He requires nothing outside of himself to be exactly what he is. There is nothing that constitutes him, nothing that comprises him, nothing that composes him. No, all that is in God is God. And so he has life in himself. You might be thinking, this is hard to understand. I'm right there with you. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. But at the same time, even though it's hard to understand, we need to recognize that what we're talking about here is absolutely crucial. Because it's one of the main things that we are saying when we confess that the Lord, our God, 
is one. We're not just denying that there's a multiplicity of legitimate gods. We're also saying that our God, by his very nature, is one. And the Bible identifies the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as this one God. The three who are named are identical with the one essence. This is why Jesus can tell us in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. That's why Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What's Paul saying there? Well, first of all, he's explicitly affirming what the, what the book of Deuteronomy says, that there is no other God but one. But Paul is also saying there something that no one in the Old Testament ever did, ever said. No one in the Old Testament ever did this. Paul is saying that both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are this one God in his divine fullness. This is important because it guards us from making a really grave error. When we understand the Trinity, in light of God's simplicity, we can see that there are we can see that the three who are named are not parts of God. It's not like, you know, the Father is one compartment of the divine being, right? He's a third of God, and then the Son is another compartment. He's a third of God, and then the Holy Spirit is the final compartment. He's a third of God. No, to, to suggest that would be a tragic distortion of this doctrine. And really, it's why the analogies that are often used to describe the Trinity fall apart completely. Now, I can remember being at a Christian music festival some years ago. This was like way back in ancient times when I was in my early 20s. And... I went with some of my friends to see this band that they really liked. I wasn't so much into them, but I tagged along with my friends because I, I wanted to hang out with my friends. And it was interesting that right in the middle of their set, this band, they, they stopped playing, and they brought up this guy who I'm pretty sure was some kind of evangelist, and they gave him like 15 minutes to do a gospel presentation for the people who were, who were there watching this band. And it was really interesting. This guy gets up, and the first thing he does is he pulls out of his pocket just a little shamrock, you know, the, the little clover with, with three leaves on it. And he asks the audience, what does this represent? And everyone who had grown up in church knew the answer he was fishing for right away. It was like scattered throughout the crowd, People were shouting, it represents the Trinity, man. Yeah. I know that guy was well-intentioned. I'm thankful that he had a heart to minister to people that day. But that's a pretty cringy analogy for the Trinity. Another cringy analogy is an egg. You've heard this one, right? There are three parts to an egg. 
and there are three persons in the Trinity, so there must be some kind of connection we can make there. Listen, whether we're talking about a shamrock or an egg, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for describing the Trinity because it violates what we mean when we say that the Lord our God is one. Shamrocks and eggs have parts, but the triune God is simple, right? He receives nothing of his essence from anything else. He depends on nothing to be what he eternally is. He is one in his essence. But this raises yet another question. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not three parts of God, well, then what are they? Here's our second point. That God is Trinity in persons. He's Trinity in persons. I think the best way for us to get a a handle on this is by making seven statements about the Trinity. Don't worry. I'll make these very quickly. There's nothing technical about these statements. They're clear. They don't require much explanation, so we won't have to elaborate on them at all. But I believe that these seven statements will provide for us the basic logic of what we mean when we say that the Trinity is both one in essence and three in persons. So the seven statements beginning with a trio of affirmations about who can rightly be referred to as God. Number one, the Father is God. Number two, the Son is God. Number three, the Holy Spirit is God. There are the first three. We know it's safe to refer to the three who are named each as being fully God. But this is followed by a trio of negations, which will distinguish the three who are named from each other. So number four, the Father is not the Son. Number five, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Number six, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And then for the clincher, the last statement brings us back to what we have already established, that there is only one God. So here's what we're getting at. When it comes to the claim that God is three persons, we are making a numerical distinction, but we are doing this without dividing the essence of God. This is why Jesus can rightly say that we are to baptize into the one name, yet he can go on to name three. Here at Emmaus, we are not at all unaccustomed to using creeds in our services. Each month, we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed together in our gathered worship. Today, I want to share with you some about another creed of the church known as the Athanasian Creed. Now, we typically don't do the Athanasian Creed here at Emmaus. It's a little bit longer. It's a little bit harder to read. That's maybe not entirely why we don't do it, but it's part of it. But for our purposes here this morning, I want to read just a little bit of the Athanasian Creed to you because I think it'll be incredibly helpful to clarify what we mean when we say that we believe in a God who is three persons. So the Athanasian Creed states that this is the Catholic faith. Remember what we mean by Catholic. We're not claiming to be Roman Catholic. Instead, we are claiming to agree with the church throughout all times and places. We we hold to a universal faith with all other Christians. So this is that faith. This is the Catholic faith. 
that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. So here we're, we're really getting to the heart of things, right? Because when it comes to the three who are named, we do not blend them. We do not confuse them with one another as if there is no real distinction between them. But at the same time, we are also careful not to divide their one essence. Remember, we are talking about a God who is simple. He he cannot be broken up into parts. If you skip down a few articles, the Athanasian Creed continues by saying that just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord. So Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father, the Son. So now we are getting to exactly what it is that that distinguishes the persons of the Trinity from each other. Remember, we need to be able to distinguish them without dividing them. And thankfully, the scriptures give us some very helpful language with which we can talk about the Trinity and understand the Trinity. In fact, this is the very language that the Athanasian Creed uses when it says that the Father is the Father because he is uncreated, unmade, and unbegotten. And what makes the Son the Son is that he too is unmade and uncreated, but he is begotten eternally from the Father. We see this alluded to in different places in Scripture. For instance, The book of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, it talks about how the Lord says to his son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Then it's interesting, just a few verses later, it says of the son in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the person of the son is somehow both eternal, right? He, he, he's timeless, he's unchanging in the same way that the Father is timeless and unchanging. But at the same time, he is also begotten from the Father. This is why we like to say in the Nicene Creed that the Son is God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten not So you see, the kind of begetting that the scriptures and the Nicene Creed have in mind is not of some creature being created, but rather it is of a son who is eternally generated from the father. That's what makes the father and the son distinct. The Nicene Creed also helps us to articulate what makes the spirit distinct. It says 
as well as the Athanasian Creed, it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the same wording that is used by Jesus in John 15, 26. Jesus uses it in passing when he says, when the, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's actually a, a technical term for what we're talking about here. Theologians will refer to this as the Trinity's eternal relations of origin. Maybe that's, that, that, that terminology is new to you. Maybe you've never heard that. So let's say it together. Eternal relations of origin. One more time. Eternal relations of origin. These eternal relations of origin are the way that Scripture distinguishes between the persons of the Trinity without violating their one shared essence. And it's the answer to the question that we asked a moment ago. Remember what that question was. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three different parts of God, then what are they? Well, that's what we're talking about. They are three persons sharing one essence, yet distinguished from one another by their eternal relations of origin. Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, the Son. So you see, when Jesus mentions the one name, and then he names three, it's actually not a matter of us reconciling the math. What it is, is it's a matter of us having the right way to talk about and to think about the God who is three persons. So the only thing left to ask here this morning is why does this matter? Or an even better question would be, why is this good news? That's the third point and the final point we're going to make today, that this trinity we've been trying to get our heads around is good news for you, and it's good news for the world. I know we've waded through some technical terms and some deep theological concepts, so I don't want the good news of the trinity to be lost on us. So now would be a good time to remind you that this trinity is the God who is present and working in your life. Like everything you experience of God on a daily basis is Trinitarian in nature. Let me flesh this out a little bit before we conclude. We've talked about how God is one in essence. And because this is true, because he is one in his essence, what this means is that the triune God does not need you. He does not need you. If he is a simple being, if there is nothing that composes him, then he is not dependent on anything besides himself to be who he is. God is absolutely self-sufficient. He has life in himself, so he doesn't need us to prop him up. This is why Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And as counterintuitive as it may sound to some of us, let me tell you something. It is very good news that God does not need you. 
You don't want a God who needs something from you. You don't want to serve a God who needs your help to be okay. That is a lousy God. Because if the God that you worship is needy, then it sounds to me like he's in the same boat as all of us. When I come to God and I say, God, my heart is filled with sorrow upon sorrow. I'm not sure I can go on. If the best response that God can muster to that is, well, join the club. Then me and God, we're both in trouble. We both have a problem. So if God is going to be our father that we can call upon, if he is going to be our savior who can deliver us decisively from sin and death, if he is going to be the lifter of our head in times of trouble, then we need him to be someone who needs nothing. The gospel is only good news if it's an arrangement with God where all the need is on our part and we're bringing plenty to the table. So for Christianity to stand, for it to mean anything at all for us, it must be true that because he is one in essence, our triune God does not need us. That's not all. We also need it to be true that because he is Trinity in person, our triune God loves us. He wants us to be swept up into the glory of his Trinitarian love. Because God is who he is, he doesn't need us, but boy, he sure wants us. And isn't that what each and every one of us is searching for? Isn't that what each and every one of us gets out of bed for in the morning to know that we are wanted and loved by somebody somewhere? And isn't it true that a life where we feel persistently unwanted is in many ways an unbearable life? Many of us know this all too well. We carry deep wounds from being rejected by someone who was supposed to love us. Maybe it's a parent spouse, a local church that you've been a part of sometime in the past. Maybe the result of not being wanted and loved in these particular types of situations has you walking through every day of your life with a constant narrative running through your head. No one wants me. No one cares. If I went away tomorrow, nobody would notice. I'm inconsequential. That's what's playing in your head on repeat. It's this persistent loop of gloom and despondency because you feel unwanted. If that's the lie that you're living under, then the doctrine of the Trinity is the truth that you need. Our triune God is the only one who can really satisfy our longing to be wanted and loved. Just think about who it is we're talking about here. We're talking about the father with open arms who wants you as his dear child. And then there's the son 
who calls you not his servant, but his friend. Oh, and what about the Holy Spirit? Well, he takes joy in having you as his dwelling. And we know this. We know that this is the character of our God because of what it says in 1 John, which tells us that not only is God loving, right? He, he doesn't just have a loving disposition toward us. He doesn't just do loving things for us, but instead our God himself is love. This is why when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, what's being offered to us is God's very self. We're being called to worship a God who doesn't need us, but who wants us and loves us more than we could ever know because he is the God who is love. Friends, this is the very heartbeat of the gospel. God the Father showed his love for us in this way. That while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. And because of all that the son has purchased for us, God gives us the Holy Spirit to shed abroad in our hearts his love. I mean, come on, how, how wonderful is that? How incredible is it that we get to be we, malefactors like us? We get to be beneficiaries of an infinite Benefactor who was willing to spare no expense to obtain us all for this reason. Our triune God is love. This is something we see all over the New Testament. You can flip to any page and find that the gospel we believe right now, the gospel that we declare and display this morning, it has Trinitarian contours to it. It has a distinctly Trinitarian shape. In the middle of the New Testament, we see this where Paul ends his second letter to the Corinthians with a Trinitarian benediction. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Friends, our, our triune God is with us right now. He is present in our midst to pour out his grace and his love so that we can have communion with him. Flip to the very next book of the New Testament, the book of Galatians. And Paul tells us in chapter 4 that because we are sons and daughters of God, well, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts in which we cry, Abba, Father. The reality that we have been adopted into God's family is a Trinitarian reality, right? We have God as our father. We have Jesus as our elder brother. And through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we can lay hold of this reality. Then just go a few more pages into the book of Ephesians. From the very outset of the book, Paul is outlining for us that the gospel of our salvation is Trinitarian through and through. Paul tells us that before the foundations of the world were laid, the Father predestined us in love to become his children through the redeeming blood of his Son. 
And God gives to us the gift of the Holy Spirit to seal this redemption upon us so that we might be guaranteed and sealed to, re to receive the full blessings of our redemption right now and in the age to come. Friends, do you see? Do you see why this is such good news? The Trinity is what makes the gospel the gospel. But not only is this good news for us, it's also good news for the world. At the start of the sermon, I read a quote that reminded us that the doctrine of the Trinity is a call to worship. And it definitely is that. I stand by that. But the doctrine of the Trinity, I would add, is also a call to mission. Let it not be lost on us that for this message on the Trinity, our launching off point was the Great Commission. Remember where we started, verse 19 of Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, go, that's the imperative, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want you to see that not, all, not only are we saved in the triune name of God, we are sent in the triune name of God. So if this message has landed on you today, if it's resonating with you at all, then I want to make just one more appeal to you today. Would you resolve in your heart to respond to what you've heard today by taking part in our Share and Invite initiative? Two weeks ago, I stood right here and I asked you to identify one person in your life and commit to do three things for that person. I asked you first to pray for them. Ask God to grant them faith and the repentance that leads to life. Number two, I asked you to take a step toward that person and show them in some way that you care for them. And number three, I asked you to share about Jesus with that person. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about all that God is doing in your life, all that God is doing about Emmaus, and invite them to join you at church on a Sunday morning. That's the three things, prayer, care, and share. There's someone in your sphere of influence who needs to experience the love of the triune God, and you are just the right person to invite them to know the triune God. So on your way out today, would you grab one of our share and invite cards? I've got some up here. You can come grab one from me or outside in the lobby. There is a, a pub table and you can find a stack of the share and invite cards on there. Would you grab one of those cards, tear off the bottom of the card and put it in the hands of somebody who needs to know the love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. triune God, this is the cry of our hearts this morning. Would you bless us and pour out your love within us as you hear it? Our cry is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be. 
world without end. In your name we ask, amen.